Okay, welcome back to Fast Jet Performance then. I'm Tim Davies. We've got another post out. This one seems to have taken hold on LinkedIn quite a lot. It's been shared over 80 times. I think it's got about 40 comments from a whole wide spectrum of, of industry and commerce and, and military aviation, but also civilian aviation. And I think it struck a bit of a chord because it talks about value. Uh, value in the workplace, how we value people, and more importantly, uh, how we kind of value ourselves, really. So this one, I would say, if you were thinking about which podcast to listen to, this might be a good one. It's only about 20 minutes, really. But um, if you listen through to the end, you'll sort of see what I'm talking about. And I will comment on this at the end about something that someone has recently talked to me about and how we kind of had a conversation about um, what maybe she should do in the future. Okay, I'll go straight through it now. Again, speed me up if you need to. When pilots quit, why we must stop telling people they are valued unless we truly value them. I'm expensive. Not that I have an apartment in Knightsbridge and wear Louis Vuitton shoes, no. But to the taxpayer, I am worth a lot of money. Every trainee fast jet pilot in the last seven years has come through a school that I have been an instructor on. Training each pilot has cost the taxpayer £4 million and there has been about 30 of them per year. Quick Maths says that I've been involved in £840 million worth of training. And my own training costs, well, I can only hazard a guess. There aren't many instructors who train instructors how to teach other instructors how to teach the students. It gets complicated after that, but because I commanded the team that did just this, I know there's not many. But illusions of grandeur and humour aside, I turned 42 this year and I really need to start thinking about finding another job. Years of teaching air combat have convinced my neck and back that they would prefer to become mattress testers, but I reckon they could still be involved in some pretty fierce typing if the right consultancy firm came along. My desire to stay in the cockpit meant that further promotion passed me by like a ship in the night, but I am not bitter. As I approach 18 years of service, I've only worn the shackles of a desk job once in the job I am currently in. And even now, I still hold a cockpit for a couple of weeks of the month. I'm not complaining. When I left the Royal Navy, after the decommissioning of the Sea Harrier left many of us without anything to fly, the RAF reached out and picked up a few of us waifs and strays. And in the RAF, a finer employer you could not find. And if you've ever looked even a little bit skywards, then apply to join because it is far from a regular job as you will ever find. The crew room is a bit like the old Top Gear, just with fighter jets and less money. But like any profession, the novelty eventually wears off, and the fact that it has taken almost 20 years to do so is testament to how good a career it actually is. But I do need to start looking to the future, and I recently dusted off my CV. I told the service that I wished to leave and I gave him my notice. The future was golden and just around the corner, a fresh start was looming. I could see a new horizon on the uh, horizon. But then the RF decided to interfere with my cunning plan and maybe an offer to continue my stay in the service, but on different terms. It got me thinking. The offer they made was given to just 30 people. It said that the RAF would allow me to serve until I was 60 and it would guarantee flying related posts, but not always a cockpit. And my flying pay, about £12,000 a year, would now become pensionable. In return, I would have to agree to stay in the service for at least the next five years. Seemed like quite a reasonable offer, I thought, so I turned it down. You see, 
Having recently bought a stupidly expensive house after only seeing it for just 30 minutes, I've been thinking a lot about value recently. A value proposition states that if you want something, you have to offer something in return. This can be camels, time, or your daughter's hand in marriage, but nowadays it is normally money, and the amount of money you offer is directly proportional to the amount of value you place in the item. For example, when people sell a business, they sometimes find it hard to value it accurately. Because of all the hard work they put into it over the years, they frequently value the business too highly and it doesn't sell. Often, you'll hear people say that a business is worth what someone is willing to pay for it, and this is absolutely true. Microsoft buying LinkedIn for $19 billion, or Facebook's purchase of WhatsApp for $22 billion are cases in point, and far exceeded market expectation at the time. And it's not just businesses. The watch I wear costs less than £300 and has a margin of error of just one second in 100,000 years. It receives a radio signal from an atomic clock every night to set the time accurately, something that is essential when flying high-performance military aircraft. Yet some of my pilots will still insist on wearing Breitlings or Omegas, which are some of the most inaccurate watches I've ever used but cost an absolute fortune. For the restaurant, yes, but for the cockpit, no. So yes, value is a very subjective issue. And when my wife and I bought our house, we did it because she didn't want anyone to live there. The price then just became a case of what we could afford and not what we thought was necessarily good value. Which brings me on to how we value people, especially those we employ. Now, as I'm 42 this year, the next five years are going to be reasonably critical for me. Should I wish to step outside and find another career? And at the moment, I have to give a year's notice to leave the service. That's right, a whole year. This means that should a company come knocking for my services, I have to tell them that I can't join them for a while. Not surprisingly, companies do not come knocking. Incidentally, when I questioned this with our man or HR department, they said that I needed to give that much notice because it takes them a year to train another Hawk T2 instructor. I know it does, I replied. I've trained every single one of them. I think the irony was lost on them. When I was one of the three flight commanders on the squadron, one of us, a good friend of mine, had served a few months more than me and the other flight commander and was offered a financial incentive to stay in for five more years. The money was £100,000, a significant sum. The other flight commander and I had been to university. We joined the RF a couple of years later and were not in the time frame to be eligible for the offer, even though we were doing the same job. We were doing the same job, but were not as valued as our colleague. You see, in the services, we are constantly being told that we are valued. We are told that we are valued when our pay is frozen and our benefits are cut, when the original pension terms we joined on are changed for the worse and when we are constantly undermanned and have to cover the jobs of others for no extra remuneration. However, sometimes a senior officer would get a little bit confused with the eloquent rhetoric of value. And I do remember one getting frustrated with some of our engineers during a speech he was making when he coldly stated, this train is going to Glasgow. If you don't like it, then you can all get off. If you need to know why the RF had a manpower, engineering manpower shortage in the mid-2000s, then you might like to start looking here. So for me, the lack of the £100,000 wasn't a huge deal. A frustration, yes, and something that I still remember, but it didn't ever really make me bitter. But for my friend, the other flight commander, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. 
At the time, the squadron was plagued with difficulties and the stresses on the command staff and the pilots were high. At the end of his tour, my friend decided to leave the RAF. The money to him was very much a factor and he took his family to the Middle East to fly out there instead. My other colleague who took the money said that it did keep him in the service. The money had retained talent as it was supposed to do. Incidentally, that 100000 doesn't all end up in your bank account. It's given to you in the first year and it's heavily taxed on top of your salary. You end up with just over 50000 or about £10,000 per year that ties you in for the next five years. And for some, it can be a decision that they quickly come to regret. I recently read of an employee who got angry at a co-worker who had just returned from maternity leave. She completed the required weeks that she had to do and then promptly left the company to start another job. I mean, wouldn't that make you mad? Well, it shouldn't. You see, at-will employment works both ways. The company is not obligated to the employee, nor is the employee beholden to the company. This incentivizes employers to bring value to the employee and the employees to bring value to the business. The employer makes the rules. The employee just has to operate within them. When I led my team of instructors, I was always careful to try and be as authentic as possible in my dealings with them. I remember one of them, who also happened to be a good friend, walk into my office one day for a brief chat. I've just been in to see the boss to tell him that I'm thinking of leaving, he said. Well, what did he say? I asked, expecting that the boss would have bitten his hand off to get him to stay. After all, we did have staffing problems on the squadron. At this time, my colleague was probably the most experienced fast jet flying instructor in the Royal Air Force. He was a Central Flying School accredited instructor, a globally recognised and world-renowned qualification whose experience was unmatched. I'd flown with him on my wing over southern Iraq, flying Tornado GR4s back in the day, and my trust in him was unquestionable. He had come up against a natural breakpoint in his career and was at a crossroads. He told me that when I made up my mind, I was to let him know, he said. Now, I was surprised and not best pleased. As a trait, compassion is not a bad one for all leaders to have. Some would say that it was essential. And yet here was a man who was obviously just looking for someone to give him the proverbial hug. He just needed the chat. Someone to tell him that he was still needed on the squadron. Although people go to work for the money, it's not all about the cash. People go to work because they are comfortable with the environment, the workload, their colleagues and the company. But above all, they need to feel like they are making a difference and that they are valued. That is why pay rises don't always work. A pay rise is a pay rise for a day, and then it just goes back to being a salary. It's the same when someone threatens to leave unless they get a pay rise. They have already made up their mind to go, and even if they get the raise, the company will be planning on moving them on soon anyway, as they have shown their hand and the scenario will probably play out again in the near future. But we can all agree that being paid more does help with the mortgage. And as you become more qualified and experienced in your industry, more interest is shown in you from other employers. A quick quote here. In fact, while a higher salary won't necessarily boost your happiness, researchers from the University of British Columbia, Michigan State University, found that people with higher incomes reported feeling less sad. That's from Cora on the internet. So my buddy eventually left to train foreign militaries overseas. He realised that he wasn't valued on the squadron after all. Probably near £6 million worth of education was just given across to a defence contractor. And all because somebody was unable to say eight simple words. I value the work you are doing here. Recently, my attention was drawn to a general 
who may have finally recognised that people are the centre of gravity of an organisation and without the people, the guns don't shoot and the planes don't fly. And I'll quote them now. This is um, General Robert Neller, Commandant of the United States Marine Corps. And uh, he is in post from September 2015 and he's still in post now. So he's the current Commandant. Most people with good ideas are annoying because they are frustrated. The Marines that we want to re-enlist don't want to stay because they get tired of being around stupid people. They do. They get frustrated. They get tired of beating their head up against a wall. They say, you guys won't listen to me. I'm out of here. I'm going to go to college and make a million bucks. And they do. But often, well, even well-meaning commanders find themselves taking a hard line on their people in order to meet all the tasks they receive from higher headquarters. And the impact of the words can be devastating for employer attention. So here's another general. If you leave, someone else will step in. And that's General Mark Welsh. He is the chief of staff of the United States Air Force, and he still is the chief of staff at the moment. And they do have some manning issues in the, in the USAF. Um, so that last quote comes from a commander who was already over 500 fast jet pilots short alongside many other trades. And the following quote highlights a common complaint from the people that stay and have to carry on doing the same with less. This quote now, in fact, given our current fiscal realities, ladies and gentlemen, we will not do less with less. We will do the same with less. All done in a world that remains very dangerous. And that was General Amos. He used to be Commandant of the United States Marine Corps from 2010 to 2014. So we can kind of see that maybe things are starting to develop. Doing, as he says, we will not do less with less. We will do the same with less. And that's what kind of pisses people off. So this is where I believe we often have a leader-follower disconnect. It's one that I've been guilty of myself. A competent workforce is not eroded overnight. It can take months or years and its demise is insidious in nature. It is for this reason that a commander will often not realise the detrimental extent of their policies until it is too late. It is at this point where we attempt to do the same with less and people get angry, stressed and they leave. We should, of course, refuse to compromise our authenticity in command and prioritise maintaining the integrity of our workforce. But this is often sacrificed for the short term gain of being looked on favourably by the next rank up. If we have less, we must do less. But another reason people leave is a failure to invest in them. Some very intelligent people join the military and it's in the interest to hang on to these fast thinkers. The problem is that these minds need to be stimulated and if they aren't, they just look for the stimulation elsewhere. When we fail to motivate our workforce, frustrations will appear. And when we stop investing in our people, they will leave. I remember reading about one HR director who said to the CEO, what if we give them all the training and then they leave? And the CEO replied, what if we don't give them the training and they stay? One thing to remember, though, is that you are not bigger than the system. Make sure that you leave your job better than when you found it. There's a quick quote here. Son, the Air Force was there before you or me and it will be there long after you punch. Don't do anything because you think leaving is going to make the Air Force miss you. It won't. Take care of your family first. Do the best you can at your job and get an education the Air Force can't take away from you. Quote from son of a... A sergeant with 20 years, 26 years experience in the United States Air Force. So maybe we need to look at how we value our employees. Do our words actually match our actions? If people are expendable, then we must expect them to eventually go. There is no harm in vocalising this message and it lets everyone plan for a time when they will transition into another space. Families can be told and employees can prepare. But if it is true that we value our workforce, then we need to do more than just say it. We need to show them that we mean it. 
and if we are seeing critical talent leaving that we can't afford to lose, then ask them why they are going. It might not be about the money. It could be something that is easily solvable. But often, by the time someone tells you they are leaving, they've probably already decided to go. It's not the individual making the decision, but the family support network behind them. Communication can go a long way in helping with their decision. Here's a quote then. I'm almost done, actually. The most effective leaders are actually better at guarding against danger when they acknowledge that it exists. Cowards, in contrast, cling to the hope that failure will never happen and may be sloppy in the face of danger, not because they don't acknowledge that it exists, but because they're just too afraid of it to look it in the face or look at it in the eye. Sorry, that's Simon Sinek, a guy you might want to look up if you're interested in this sort of thing. So I didn't want to see my team instructors leave for the Middle East, but it happened because we didn't incentivize them to stay. Each one of these pilots cost over £4 million to train, and when they left, they gifted this training to a contractor to employ them overseas. It doesn't seem a very good deal for the taxpayer or for the service. From a human resources perspective, if it costs you £4 million to train an employee, it is well worth you incentivizing them to stay. That is just common sense. Even if we were to think of some crazy figures and pay an instructor £1 million for a 10-year bond, it still saves us spending another £3 million in training an unknown quantity. Now speak to anybody who employs high performers in the finance sector and they will tell you categorically that we are throwing money away. That's why they give their employees huge yearly bonuses to reward them for the value they have brought the organisation and to stop them leaving. For me, I will soon be flying in bluer skies. That's actually metaphorical. But as I feel the wind in my hair and the sun on my face, I hope that I will be flying alone for to find another one of my pilots behind one of those clouds will mean that I have failed to retain the one thing that can truly endure and sustain future talent. Talent itself. So let's stop telling our people that they are valued unless we can back it up by offering proper value in return. And let's not be surprised when there is no money to incentivize retention means that there are no longer people to do the job. A quote to finish. Train people well enough so they can leave. Treat them well enough so they don't want to. That's Richard Branson from Virgin. And we are done. Awesome. So it's a message about value. And here's the thing as well. I was chatting to, as I said, beginning uh, before I spoke about this, I said, I was chatting to a woman and she said, um, she said that she doesn't feel valued by her employer. And I said to her, well, this is the thing. Okay. Um, what do you value in your life? And she said, well, I, I you know, um, value my kids and my car and whatever it might be. Well, in order to value those things, those things has to be, they have to be valuable to you. They have to be valuable. So what makes her valuable to her employer? What makes her someone that they can't get rid of? What makes her indispensable? What is that? So in order to be indispensable, you have to be different. I think Coco Chanel said that. As a, I'm probably stealing a quote there. But you have to be different. You have to be different from everyone else. Else, they, If they're going to sack everyone else, they'll sack everyone else before you. If you are bringing something to an organization that no one is bringing. And here's a quick story. And it will take literally 30 seconds of your time. But when I was on a Tornado GR4 squad and up in Lossy Mouth, everyone was scared of planning um, with the alarm missile. The alarm missile is an air launch, uh, air launch anti-radiation missile that would go out, hunt down surface-to-air missile systems. They were scared of planning because the planning was so complicated and we didn't understand the complicated missile and we didn't understand the complicated missile systems that we were trying to target. And I most definitely didn't understand it. Now, like most people, if I don't understand something, I kind of look the other way and pretend it's going to go away. Hopefully it will because it's quite complicated. But with this thing, I thought, 
No one on the squadron has really kind of gripped this. If I go and do a course on this missile, if I go and do a course about how to plan it, then I'll become the guy in the squadron that people will turn to and they're going to want me to fly in their formations the whole time. And when we go on Red Flag or TLP in, in, in Florian in Belgium, they're going to want me to go. So I did this course. I did, um, it was a, about a week-long course down south. And then I did a couple of days follow-up and I became an electronic warfare officer. And then I upgraded from that eventually and I became an electronic warfare instructor, as a couple of buddies on my squadron did. And we specialized in attacking enemy air defense systems. That's what we did. And uh, we became very good at planning with this missile. In fact, the planning with the missile for us became second nature because we'd be in there late in the evenings giving each other different scenarios about how we can get the missile to do this and put it in different modes and, and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, when guys had the plan with the missile, they'd come to us and say, guys, can you help us? So all of a sudden... On the squadron, out of about 16 guys, there were two or three that you couldn't get rid of because no one else had that capability. And no one else had the time to go and find that capability because now they were too far into the squadron. So we made ourselves pretty much indispensable, which, again, if you want to get off a fast jet squadron after you're burnt out after three years, just have a think about doing that because you might find yourself absolutely stuck. Dig it off it, another story. Anyway, so maybe at your workplace or with the people that you look after, Try and upgrade their skill sets and make them really valuable to your organization. And just maybe once in a while, turn around to someone in the office that gives you a piece of work back and just say, look, thank you for that. I really value what you've done. Okay, it'll make a difference. I guarantee it. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate your support. Add comments if you can, and uh, I'll, I'll do some more posts, and that is great. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Tim Davies, Fast Yet Performance.